Pack your bags and prepare to hurry up and wait. The lead starts right now. Well, if you thought it would be easier to fly than paying soaring gas prices this holiday weekend, brace yourself. Flights are so overbooked and the schedule is so precarious that one airline is offering, get this, $10,000 for passengers to give up their seats. Yes, I said $10,000. And major developments in the January 6th hearing. CNN with new information about who may have tried to intimidate star witness Cassidy Hutchinson before she testified. And then the loved ones of the Uvalde shooting victims are sick of waiting for answers. We're sitting here just listening to empty words. That's all it is, empty words. My sister died protecting her children, her students. Why the mayor claims he can't tell them anymore. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper, and we begin with our politics lead and breaking news as we follow the repercussions from Cassidy Hutchinson's bombshell testimony before the January 6th committee. CNN's Ryan Nobles has the very latest. Witness intimidation has become a serious focus of the January 6th select committee. CNN has learned that both instances the committee presented as examples of possible witness intimidation during their hearing on Tuesday were directed at their witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. Sources say the committee believes that pressure was applied at the behest of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, a claim Meadows spokesperson Ben Williamson rejects. No one from the Meadows camp, himself or otherwise, ever sought to intimidate or shape her conversations with the committee, Williamson said in a statement to CNN. The accusations of intimidation come at the same time the New York Times reports that organizations close to Donald Trump have been helping to pay for the legal fees of witnesses before the committee. It's a practice that is not uncommon or illegal, but according to the committee's former senior investigator, it does raise potential problems. It does run the risk that they would be less cooperative than they would be if they had attorneys who are advising them who are uh, being paid by the client, uh, in other words, the witness themselves. The committee is also still working with Secret Service to schedule another round of depositions for two agents who worked in the Trump administration at the center of a dispute over the former president's conduct inside the presidential SUV on January 6th. CNN learning that accounts of an angry Trump demanding to go to the Capitol over Secret Service objections started circulating among agents in the months after January 6th. CNN has learned that agent Tony Ornato, who was also Trump's deputy chief of staff, has met with the committee on two previous occasions. Some committee members say his version of events on that day were murky. Mr. Ornato um, did not have as clear of memories uh, from uh, this period of time as I would say Ms. Hutchinson did. Meanwhile, the work of the committee was front and center last night in Wyoming. The 2000 Mules movie is something that I think we have great concern about. Vice Chair Liz Cheney's opponent, Harriet Hageman, promoting conspiracy theories about the election results, while Cheney accused Hageman of doing Trump's bidding. She knows it wasn't stolen. Uh, I think that she can't say that it wasn't stolen because she's completely beholden to Donald Trump. And if she says it wasn't stolen, he will not support her. 
And in the weeks ahead, the committee has some important work in front of them. They are still working to schedule two new rounds of depositions with those two Secret Service agents, Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel. At this point, we don't know if they're making any progress in that regard. And then there, of course, comes the testimony of Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. CNN learning that Cipollone does appear to be willing to sit for at least a transcribed interview. Pamela, the committee may be looking for a bit more. Yeah, uh, Liz Cheney, the vice chair, has made that clear. Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. And with us to share their insights, former Trump White House Communications Director Alisa, Alyssa Farah Griffin and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Hi, ladies. Great to see you. So, Alyssa, I want to start with you just on the heels of this new reporting that we have out. Um, you know and you worked with Cassidy Hutchinson. What is your reaction to Ryan's reporting that the committee believes the pressure on her was applied by an intermediary to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. I was extraordinarily disappointed to see that reporting and to learn that, but unfortunately not surprised. Um, you know I worked for Mark Meadows for a long mm -hmm. time, and I, I, I spent a, a while trying to not criticize him, wanting what I saw in him to be true. And the more that has been revealed from this, it shows that he was as responsible, if not more responsible, even than the former president and some of these horrible actions that took place in the final days. Um, I'm sure it's going to come out at some point who the person was that actually sent those those text messages. But from her testimony, you know that the only person who might have had even more exposure from what she revealed than Donald Trump was Mark Meadows. So it makes sense that they would engage in this kind of intimidation. Mm. And of course, she was a top aide to him in the White House. The Meadows camp is denying this. But Jennifer, I mean, whoever this is, right, it's a big deal. I mean, this is something that whoever this is, they, they should probably be worried about the legal um, implications here. Right, Pamela. I mean, it's a freestanding charge, of course. Witness intimidation, obstruction of justice can be its own criminal offense. Now, I certainly would want to see more details about who sent it, what the actual language was, what corroboration there is before saying that there's a likelihood or even a possibility of criminal charges. But it's also something else. And I thought Liz Cheney used this very effectively. It's consciousness of guilt evidence, right? So prosecutors use this all the time. If you have to reach out to prospective witnesses to say, hey, stay on the team, you want to be loyal, you know, the subject of your testimony, meaning the former president reads the transcripts, that means that you know that you've done something wrong. And so prosecutors use this all the time. And I thought Cheney used it very effectively to try to sway her audience, the American people, that these people were doing bad things and they knew they were doing bad things. Mm. And I want to get your reaction, Alyssa, to the Secret Service sources telling CNN, backing up the basic premise of the story that Cassidy Hutchinson told, that she said she was told to by uh, Tony Ornato. They're backing this up about Trump's angry behavior after the January 6th rally. Well, the most important part of that, you know, we all, the anecdote was so vivid, of course, of him right. reaching for it and all that. But the most important thing, which is corroborated by the former president himself, was that he, in fact, wanted to go to Capitol Hill, knowing that there were people there who were armed and who wanted to obstruct the process of certifying the election. So that's not even under contention. What is, is that very limited story that it now sounds like other people heard. And I'm not surprised by that. Mm -hmm. I'm highly confident that this is going to come out in Cassidy's favor as more facts, um, mm -hmm. you know, come come to light in the coming weeks. And, and, and the bottom line is maybe those most salacious details that she that she says Tony told her, maybe they don't turn out to be true. But the overall premise, like you said, 
is that he wanted to go to the Capitol, which we know, and that she was told a story, well, right? Exactly. We're Just, kind of missing the forest through the trees exactly. on this. He knew that there were people armed with things, including AR-15s, going to the Capitol. He asked for mag- mags to be taken down so that they could come to his ellipse rally and then encourage them, we're going to walk to Capitol Hill, and then has admitted in interviews he's done that he wanted to go to Capitol Hill. So right. that's the real story. But I also, I completely believe her account of it. I won't believe a word to what Tony Ornato says until he's under oath. Right. And you've had your own experiences with Tony Ornato. Um, Jennifer, bringing you in, the New York Times reports that organizations close to Donald Trump have been helping to pay for the legal fees of witnesses before the committee. What kind of issues would that raise, if true? Well, it's not inherently problematic because, you know, a lot of these are lower level staffers. They don't have a lot of money. So, you know, they may need some help on the on the legal end. The problem is if the representation is not independent. If the PACs that work for Donald Trump, that work to elect Donald Trump, are effectively giving legal advice to these witnesses, that really is benefiting Donald Trump and not the witnesses. That's where you have a legal ethics problem for the actual lawyers, but also a problem in terms of what information the committee is getting. So that's why it's a problem. And here in the committee setting, you don't have the option like you would in a criminal case to go before a judge and have an inquiry about whether the client thinks the lawyer is really representing him or her independently. So I think the committee's doing the right thing uh, if they're asking witnesses about their representation. Obviously, we know that Ms. Hutchinson changed lawyers right before she testified publicly, likely because she thought her prior counsel provided by the Trump folks was not really working in her best interest. And I hope that, that other witnesses think about that as they move forward, because none of them will want a perjury charge. And if you have a lawyer who's more interested in Trump's interest and Meadows' interest than your own, you may get yourself in trouble. Right. That makes uh, that makes sense. Alyssa, let's talk about Representative Liz Cheney, the committee's vice chair. She is fighting for her political life. So I want to listen to what she said at a Republican primary debate last night. You know, I, I think that um, uh, there's a real tragedy that's occurring. And, and the tragedy is that there are politicians in this country, beginning with Donald Trump, who have lied to the American people. We've got to be honest. We have to be truthful. Elected officials, in particular, public servants, owe that to those people we represent. How do you see the state of the Republican Party? Is it willing to listen to that? Well, I think what she's doing is incredibly important, which is standing shoulder to shoulder with the other people on that stage, respouting the big lie, nonsense, saying you should watch 2,000 Mules, a widely debunked conspiracy theory film. It's important to have public figures tell the truth and juxtapose that to what others are saying. This is a battlefield of ideas. The party is very squarely in the big lie, election lies, Donald Trump camp right now. But the more that you have people educating the voters and being willing to even sacrifice their political careers to say, this isn't true, these are lies that are being fed to you, it's going to have an impact over time. And I will just say anecdotally, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, I think, resonated with people in a significant way. Many of my family members are Trump supporters. That won't surprise you. I was a Trump yeah. supporter. And um, they said, they're like, she was very credible. I believed everything that she said. That came from two different people. Mm-hmm. And that's going to break through over time. But you also just need truth tellers who are going to go shoulder to shoulder with these election deniers like Liz Cheney to tell the truth and speak it to power. All right, Alyssa, Jennifer, thank you so much. So would you give up your seat on a flight for $10,000? That was the choice some passengers were given by one airline on this messy holiday travel weekend. 
And then earlier this week, it was a shopping mall. Today, Russia targeting an apartment building and a rec center in Ukraine. We are live on the ground. In our money league, millions are already traveling for what experts say will be the busiest travel weekend of the year so far. And for the first time in a long while, gas prices are actually declining. AAA says the national average for regular gasoline is now $4.84 a gallon. That's down nine cents from last week, but still more than a dollar and 70 cents more than gas prices were just one year ago. Well, despite feeling the heat at the gas pump, the high prices aren't keeping Americans in park. Siemens Layla Santiago joins us live from Miami. And Layla, how many Americans are expected to hit the road this holiday weekend? Well, if you ask AAA, they will tell you that nearly 48 million travelers will be out and about over the weekend for this holiday weekend. 42 million of those, such a big chunk, they're expected to hit the road. And and pretty interesting timing right now, because if you were to look at exactly when the most, uh, the highest volume of travelers on the road are expected to, to be out and about, it's right now. It is Friday evening, or afternoon rather, as folks are getting off of work, getting ready to start their holiday weekend. Now, we have been at this gas station where we are just above uh, the national average right now for gas prices, and we've been here all day talking to to folks and and really watching when they get out of the car, kind of roll their eyes as they see the gas prices and and, and really pause when they see the total of how much it is costing folks to to fill up their pumps. But really, if you look at the numbers and what was released from the AAA forecast for Independence Day weekend, numbers are still pretty high, expected to be record-breaking for those that are driving for their getaways. Prices are crazy. I'm fueling just now. You know, it's like it's like five for a gallon. It's it's just crazy. We thought a lot about where to go, uh, what the distance, like maybe share a big car. The two jet skis already cost me about 120. I put at least maybe 40 bucks inside the truck, and that third jet ski will cost me another 60 dollars. So that's already at least 300 dollars on just fuel. So you're starting to see folks still making their plans to, to go out and about and have that vacation. Many folks saying that they would rather pay the higher gas prices than deal with the headaches over at the airport. Yeah, not many uh, good options for ahead of this holiday weekend. All right, Leila Santiago in Miami, thank you so much. And while the roads will be packed for the 4th of July holiday, a smaller share of Americans are taking to the skies. Just over three and a half million travelers are projected to fly according to AAA, and that is a near pandemic record, but the lowest share since 2011 when the economy was still rebuilding from the Great Recession. And mid the travel rush, airlines say they are overburdened. In fact, more than 380 flights in the U.S. have already been canceled with more than 3,900 delayed. CNN's Pete Montine reports uh, looks at behind these disruptions. Millions of passengers are descending on airports along with summer storms, putting short-staffed airlines to their biggest test in years. The TSA screened 2.44 million passengers at U.S. airports on Thursday, just shy of a new pandemic-era record. It feels much more like 2019 than, than the prior two years. Though with more problems for passengers, 3.5% of all flights this year have been canceled, a 42% increase over 2019. Prepare, go at the earliest time as possible. Airlines say they are facing a range of challenges at the carrier and federal government level. 
Just this week, airlines pointed to air traffic control delays caused by staffing issues at a key facility in Florida. So who is really to blame when it comes to these massive cancellations? The bottom line here is that the airlines that are selling these tickets need to have the crews and the staff to back up those sales. In an email to customers, Delta Airlines CEO is apologizing for cancellations, saying, quote, the environment we're navigating today is unlike anything we've ever faced. Thursday, off-duty Delta pilots organized picket lines at major hubs, saying they are overworked. We've been flying record amounts of overtime to in the recovery to help get our passengers safely to their destinations. At its 24-7 command center in Virginia, the FAA says it is monitoring potential weather delays in cities across the country from forecasted thunderstorms, wind, and low clouds. No one likes to be delayed, but sometimes that happens, and we always are working together intricately to make sure that you know we mitigate that as much as possible. Delta Airlines is practically encouraging its passengers to avoid the travel mess this weekend. It just instituted a system-wide travel waiver, allowing all of its passengers to rebook their flights completely free of charge now through July 4th. There are also reports that passengers on an overbooked Delta flight from Grand Rapids were offered $10,000 to give up their seat. The delays and cancellations are piling up right now. The FAA has instituted ground stops at seven airports up and down the East Coast from D.C. all the way to New York. Pam? What a mess. But wow, $10,000. Can't get over that. Pete Muntean <laughs> at Reagan National Airport. Thank you. And joining us now is airline and travel industry analyst uh, Henry Hartvelt. Hi there, Henry. Thanks for joining us today. So we're seeing this Hello. wave of flight cancellations that Pete just laid out. Airlines say they're canceling flights to minimize disruptions. Why are airlines struggling to keep up with demand? Why is this such a unique time for airlines, as the CEO of Delta said? Uh, the reason is this, that the uh, travel rebound has been far faster and far larger than uh, I think airlines expected, even though they could take a look at their future bookings from their reservation systems. But you have to understand, it takes time to find people to be pilots. You, you don't just walk in off the street to become an airline pilot and go behind the wheel of a 737. So there's a shortage of pilots, shortage of air traffic controllers, a lot of demand for travel, and it just ends up in this current chaos. So what are your tips for people trying to navigate this hectic holiday travel weekend? Well, that's one reason why I think you're seeing so many people say, you know what, we're going to forget flying if we can, uh, and we'll go, we'll drive somewhere. Uh, um, and the research study that we did uh, just got, and we just got it back of more than 1,700 airline passengers uh, said that 74% of the folks who either had flown so far this summer or were pl planning to fly, regret their decision to fly for mm -hmm. a summer vacation. The, the airlines are, are really struggling right now. No airline wants to inconvenience anyone. But when you think about it, the numbers that Pete just talked about, along with the delays, you've got uh, uh, more than 450,000 people today affected by all of these delays and cancellations. I have a flight uh, in a couple of weeks cross country, and I'm wondering, should I try to move it to like the earliest morning flight uh, to go to my destination? Is that something that passengers should consider? It, absolutely. You are always wisest to take the first flight of the day, the earliest flight you possibly can, uh, provided, of course, that it meets your budget. Uh, uh, and 
uh, where you can take a nonstop, do so because you reduce your risk of missing, you know, obviously, when you don't have to connect. Um, but also double check the airline schedule. Make sure that it flies every day to your destination. And even if you're on a nonstop, see if it has connections there, too. So what do you make of this story about Delta offering $10,000 to passengers to leave an overbooked flight? What do you think this says about the state of the industry right now? I've, I personally have never heard of that high of a number. I mean, wow. Well, that, that's not new. Delta actually initiated yeah. this uh, program several years ago, and I commend Delta for empowering its agents to basically do what they have to do to uh, uh, take people off a plane voluntarily rather than tell somebody, uh, sorry, there's no seat left for you. Uh, so it's an extreme amount of money. Uh, and I'm not sure how Delta really felt about the agent doing that. But if that was the a flight, the only flight that would connect people to long haul international destinations, for example, in Europe um, or uh, under certain other circumstances, it's well worth it because the agent got the people off the plane who uh, had the flexibility. Those folks walked away with $10,000 in, in uh, travel credit and other uh, maybe other services. And the people who needed to get to their destination got there. Yeah. So it's a win win all around. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, I keep thinking about what you said at the beginning about the labor shortage and people just can't become pilots, right? They have to go to school and there's a whole process. But I'm wondering, given the picketing we're seeing from these pilots saying that they are overworked and and, um, complaints about that and their schedules and pay, do you think that there's also just fewer people who are looking to become pilots to, to, to enter the industry? Is that a concern? Pam, that's a really good question. And that has been a problem because the airline industry has been historically cyclical and it t- can take you three to five years to get the experience you need to become an airline pilot. And it can cost 80000 to $120,000 to get dollars to get that experience. So if you are looking at that versus other careers, you're probably saying the other careers look better. The good news is you now have airlines like United that have started their own flight training schools and they have scholarships available. They're working more to recruit people to become pilots and the starting pay is a lot better. So becoming an airline pilot is a lot more stable and a lot more lucrative of a career than it was even just five years ago. Well, that's good to hear. I think we all want our our pilots flying our planes to be happy. All right, uh, Henry, thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden just met with governors and states protecting abortion rights. But how does the federal government expand access? In our politics lead today, nine Democratic governors met with President Biden to discuss abortion rights. Listen to New York Governor Kathy Hochul at that event. This is a frightening time for women all across our nation. A lot of fear and anxiety out there, and I hear it from women all across the state. Literally young women who never even had to think about this right are coming up and putting their arms around my neck and sobbing. CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us live from the White House. Jeremy, what did the governors ask for from the White House? Well, Pam, we heard the governors of New York and New Mexico both urging President Biden to open up federal facilities on federal lands to abortion services to the general public, including in states where abortion is now illegal as a result of the Supreme Court's ruling and the laws in those states. Uh, We heard the New York governor talk about federal facilities, the New Mexico governor uh, talking about Indian Health Service uh, facilities that could be opened up. But ultimately, that's something that the White House has already ruled out, essentially, calling uh, proposals to open abortion clinics on federal lands 
quote, well-intentioned, but ultimately saying that they could have, quote, dangerous ramifications. That was from the White House press secretary earlier this week, warning of the prospect of some doctors potentially being prosecuted as a result. Now, President Biden, for his part today, he focused on what his administration has already been doing in terms of trying to protect medication abortion to make sure that that's still allowed and able to uh, accessible to women across the country, and also talking about protecting the right of women in states where it's illegal now to access abortion services for them to travel to states where it is indeed legal. But ultimately, President Biden also focusing on November and the midterms, making the case that while right now he doesn't have the votes to go through and codify Roe v. Wade, even if he carved out the filibuster, he says he needs two more votes, urging voters in November to vote in two more Democratic senators so that they can get that done after the midterms. Pam. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thanks, Jeremy. And joining us now, one of the nine governors in that virtual meeting with the president, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Hi, Governor. Thanks for joining us. So what does your state need from the federal government? And do you think that President Biden can deliver? First of all, as you heard from Kathy, I think there's a sense of shock. We thought and there's so much fusion out there. So one of the asks we had was we need a way that we can get the right information to people. Uh, here in Connecticut, we're thinking about 1-800-CHOICE, a hotline you can call if you want to know what your rights are, what your reproductive rights are, where you can get contraception. And I think that'll be helpful for folks out of state who are looking for reproductive choice as well. What about from the federal government, though, from the White House? Were you satisfied with what you heard today from President Biden and uh, what the White House is doing on this front? Oh, yeah. No, President Biden is on fire on this issue. He's shocked. He's been in this game for uh, decades. Can't believe they're rolling back these rights. You know, one of the things we said together was uh, we'd like to continue the ARPA services for health care. Reproductive choice is a form of health care. And right now, if those ARPA funds run out, a lot fewer people will have health care at the end of this year. But, but what about those who criticize uh, the White House and the president saying, look, they're not doing enough on this. Um, and, you know, there have been some and this was brought up in the meeting today saying, look, you know, and I think the, the governor of New York brought this up using federal lands to provide abortion services that is off the table now, according to the White House. Do you think that's the right stance? And what do you say to the critics of the White House? Uh, I think, um, look, you can always try and do more. I think some of their priorities were really well-placed. First of all, when it comes to, um, you know, abortion pill, being able to get, deliver that by mail, so that cannot be denied in any state across the country. The president was strong. He's going to make sure that no state can take away that right to get an FDA-approved uh, pharmaceutical product like that. He also was strong. He said, I'm going to make darn sure that Texas and other states can't uh, prohibit a woman from leaving the state to exercise her reproductive choices. I think it was forceful. I was very um, impressed by the passion he felt in getting things done. But what about taking off the table using federal lands and states with abortion bans? Um, that's not an issue in our state. I understand how in other states it may be something they can consider, but obviously the general counsel of the White House said it's illegally complicated. So. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak to that. All right. So you directly tied the right to abortion with the economy in your state in this open letter today saying, quote, we are writing to any business owner that is disappointed in the stance of their current state. 
If you are looking to relocate to a state that supports the rights of women and whose actions and laws are unwavering, supportive tolerance and inclusivity, Connecticut is for you. But we should note it's pretty expensive to live in Connecticut. CNBC has a list of states with the highest tax burdens, which are individual income, property sales and other taxes as a share of total personal income. Connecticut ranks seventh highest in the nation on that list. Do you expect small business owners barely staying afloat in conservative states with lower taxes as it is to relocate? I think they're going to strongly consider it. Probably the most important thing right now, if you're a business person, a small business, has been able to recruit the best and the brightest to work for your company. And I think there's a lot of young employees right now, a lot of uh, female employees who say, I don't feel comfortable working in a state that doesn't share my values. So, yes, you come to Connecticut for a variety of reasons. We have the biggest tax cut in their history of our state coming in. We've got great schools. Uh, We have a carbon-free electric grid but also values and all culture and a place that respects women, I think will be one more reason people think about Connecticut. All right, I wanna get on to this other question about uh, that we're hearing about in New York, taking it a step further, considering enshrining abortion rights into their state constitution. Is that something that you would consider so abortion rights can't be undone by a future conservative governor? I think that's definitely something we should be looking into. We can't do it overnight. We have to have a referendum. But um, look, we have right now Roe v. Wade is codified in the state of Connecticut. So even if it's uh, taken away um, in other states, it will never be taken away in Connecticut. As long as I'm governor, as long as you have a sympathetic legislature, you just pointed out you can change governors and legislature. You see that happening. All of a sudden, that right could disappear here now. It's not going to happen here in Connecticut. I'd like to see it part of our Constitution. And Connecticut just instituted a new law which aims to legally protect providers and patients from other states' bans on abortion. A spokesperson in Connecticut's Attorney General's office told the Associated Press the office is, quote, ready to advise agencies should the state be asked to facilitate an extradition or use state resources to aid in another state's investigation proceeding. If someone can't return to their state because of legal ramifications, will Connecticut also support that person and their child? Well, first of all, we are a safe harbor. So um, if Texas wants to try and prosecute our doctors or subpoena the women that came here to exercise their rights, we're going to fight it every day, fight on behalf of that doctor and fight on behalf of uh, that woman. Uh, That's uh, airtight. If they want to move to the state of Connecticut, we'll make it easier for them to move to the state of Connecticut. But how long would you be willing to support them, a woman and, you know, her circumstances? Um, temporarily, but we will provide free job training for you. We've got the most expansive daycare, so we can make it a lot easier for you to get going back with your life if you have to move to the state of Connecticut, and that's not a bad choice. All right, Democratic Governor Ned Lamont of Connecticut, thank you so much. Nice to be with you, Pamela. A children's hospital hit by Russian strikes in Ukraine. This comes just days after a mall was hit. We are on the ground in Ukraine. Up next. And our world lead, you are looking at images of utter destruction around the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa, a result of intense Russian bombardments overnight. At least 20 people have died, and Ukrainian officials say one of those strikes hit a children's hospital. One leveled an apartment building, and another destroyed a recreation center, killing a child. CNN's Scott McLean is in the capital of Ukraine, Kiev. 
Scott, so the Odessa region is just north of Snake Island, which Ukraine says it has retaken. Was that where these Russian missiles originated? And will strikes stop now that Russian forces are off that island? Hey, Pamela. Yeah, so as we understand, the Ukrainians had already taken back that key outpost of Snake Island by the time these missiles were actually fired. This is a good reminder that the Russians can hit virtually any place uh, on Ukrainian territory with these missile strikes. The Ukrainians have long appealed for help beefing up their air defense system. Now we are getting word just tonight that they're getting some of that help from the United States. Now, the Ukrainians say that the volume of strikes against the Odessa region, though, because Snake Island has been retaken, uh, should decrease because the Russians no longer have this launch pad just off the coast of the Odessa region, less than 100 miles from the city itself, that they can use to launch strikes on an area that they've so far failed to reach by land means. And so they've had to resort to lobbing bombs by uh, missiles from airplanes, as was the case, according to the Ukrainians, uh, in this particular case with these missiles. The Ukrainians also say that uh, these are older style missiles, slightly less accurate than uh, the more modern versions. The president, President Zelensky, says they are meant to sink military ships, though. They are certainly not meant to be aimed at civilian targets. Nine-story uh, uh, apartment building, uh, a, uh, a rehab facility for, for children, uh, a summer camp, 21 people now confirmed dead, uh, along with a 12-year-old child. The Ukrainian president has accused the Russians of terrorism. The Russians, though, continue to insist that they don't aim at civilian sites. In fact, they say that, well, President Putin said earlier this week that they don't need to. They have the intelligence, they have the technology to know exactly what they're aiming at and to strike it very accurately. But obviously, this is just one more example of the fact that that simply is not true. The Russians have hit schools, the Russians have hit hospitals, and it seems like they're hitting apartment buildings every single day, Pamela. Yeah, it sure does. Scott and Kiev, Ukraine, thanks for that important reporting there. Well, tense moments as Uvalde families wait for answers about what happened to their loved ones. My sister was obliterated. It was a close casket. I couldn't hug her. I couldn't touch her. I couldn't say my last goodbye. Why city officials say they don't have the answers. International lead frustrations over police and city officials' lack of answers about the Uvalde school massacre spilled over during a tense city council meeting in Texas. As CNN's Rosa Flores reports, parents and victims' families feel officials are keeping secrets from them, and they're furious. These kids were obliterated. My sister was obliterated. It was a closed casket. I couldn't hug her. I couldn't touch her. Raw emotions turned into heated exchanges at the Uvalde City Council meeting Thursday. After Mayor Don McLaughlin told a room filled with family members of the 19 children and two adults killed at Robb Elementary that there was no new information he could share on the investigation into the failed police response. Why is it that children are calling 911 and you can't tell where these calls are coming from that y'all didn't get it? My sister had no, there's nothing saving her, but there's a lot of children that could have been saved. They keep protecting Pete Arredondo. The school board failed because the minute this happened, they should have fired him. Ma'am, let me tell you something. I, I, I feel your pain. We all do. Oh, no, you 
The mayor said he too is frustrated with the lack of transparency in the investigation and read this letter from the Uvalde district attorney. Any release of records to that incident at this time would interfere with said ongoing investigation. Which means if we release it, then we, she can take us, each and every one of us, to the grand jury and indict each and every one of us for it. I've had one heated argument with the district attorney and basically got told I could go fly a kite. Yeah, she doesn't have a heart. No, she doesn't. CNN has reached out to the Uvalde DA about this story, but so far hasn't heard back. Over and over. Visibly absent from the meeting, recently elected city council member Pete Arredondo. The head of the Texas Department of Public Safety has identified Arredondo, who is also the school district police chief, as the incident commander and laid the blame on him for the failed police response to the deadly attack. The school district placed Arredondo on administrative leave. Arredondo told the Texas Tribune he didn't consider himself the incident commander. Probably more than Thursday was the second council meeting Arredondo missed. According to the city charter, if he misses one more, he could be removed. If he misses the third, I don't think there's anybody up here that will tell you that we won't, we won't take the action that we need to take. But that's no consolation for the families who want Arredondo ousted. We want y'all to look at this. I'm not as a mayor. I'm not. I'm not trying. As a city council member, look at us as a dad, as a parent. Do, uh, don't do what you can do as a mayor. Go beyond that. I know there's a limit on what you can do. Go beyond that. What if it was your kid? I, you, know, you want? You can't say nothing. I can't. Nobody You're right. can. You're right. I can't. We can. understand that. So do your part for us. If you can't say something, do something. The district attorney has not responded to our requests for comment. She did issue a statement early on to CNN saying that the investigation would take a while and that she would not comment until then. Pamela, the next city council meeting is scheduled for July 12th. A majority of that city council could vote out Arredondo if they choose to. I've reached out to Arredondo's attorney about this story and I have not heard back. All right, Rosa, thank you so much. So sad for those families and just wanting answers. You cannot blame them at all. Well, the trial begins for WNBA star Brittany Griner, who is being wrongfully detained in Russia. What's next for her case? Plus, CNN's exclusive interview with Griner's wife. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And this hour, new information about what happened with Donald Trump inside the presidential limo on January 6th. Several sources now backing up Cassidy Hutchinson's account of Trump flipping out on his own Secret Service agents. Plus, a brutal and unprovoked attack on a woman is now causing one city to flood the streets with police and keep outsiders away. But women in that country say this is not about real change, it's about optics. And leading this hour, a wife's fight to free a two-time American Olympic gold medalist from Russian prison. WNBA superstar Brittany Griner's so-called trial began in Moscow today. Russian prosecutors accuse her of smuggling less than a gram of cannabis oil into the country. And American officials say she's been wrongfully detained, but her family says the U.S. government isn't doing enough to help bring her home. And they say they fear she is being used as a political pawn. As CNN's Fred Plykin reports, Russian officials insist her arrest is not politically motivated. Brittany Griner handcuffed as she was led into the courtroom. 
cameras were not allowed inside the trial where the WNBA star was read the charges of allegedly trying to smuggle drugs into Russia. Her lawyer saying Griner is in strong spirits. She's a bit worried, but she's, she's, she's a tough, tough lady. And I think that she will manage. What do you think are the chances she can get out, that you can get an acquittal? I would not comment on it. Brittany Griner was detained at a Moscow airport on February 17th. Prosecutors today claiming she was carrying two vaping cartridges with a total of about 0.7 grams of cannabis oil inside them. A crime in Russia that can carry a sentence of up to 10 years in a prison colony. The U.S. considers Brittany Griner as being wrongfully detained. The charge d'affaires of the U.S. Embassy was inside the courtroom and called on Russia to release Brittany Griner immediately. Wrongful detention uh, is unacceptable wherever it occurs. The United States government at the very highest levels is working very hard to bring Ms. Griner as well as all wrongfully detained U.S. citizens safely home. Brittany Griner's trial starts as tensions between the U.S. and Russia have reached a boiling point, not just over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. is also calling for the immediate release of former Marine Paul Whelan, who was sentenced to 16 years in Russian prison for alleged espionage. The U.S. called his conviction politically motivated. The Kremlin rejects that and today also said Brittany Griner's trial was not political. You know, I cannot comment on the actions of the Russian court. We don't have the right to do that and never do. I can only deal with the facts, and the facts say that a prominent athlete was detained in possession of prohibited substances that contained drugs. After about two and a half hours, Brittany Griner's trial was adjourned for another week, and she was led away handcuffed again as her lawyers and U.S. authorities fight to bring the basketball star home as soon as possible. And Pamela, Secretary of State Blinken tweeted about all this today as well. He once again said that the State Department and he himself have no higher priority than bringing Brittany Griner, Brittany Griner and other uh, what the U.S. calls wrongfully detained Americans, like, for instance, Paul Whelan, home as fast as possible. But there are two things that do need to be said. On the one hand, Trials like this in Russia can go on for a very long time, and not many people in Russia are acquitted, Pamela. Mm. Fred Plykin in Moscow, thank you. 130 days, that is how long Brittany Griner has been behind bars in Russia. And her wife spoke exclusively to CNN's Abby Phillip and opened up about what she's hearing from her wife and what she still wants to hear from the U.S. government. Tell me about uh, what you've been able to hear from Brittany in this time. There was the call that didn't happen. Um, what have you been able to hear from her while she's been in detention? So um, I haven't really been able to hear anything um, that brings me the most assurance about her well-being to that degree because the call would have given me that. Um, so I don't know how, how well she's doing. Do you f trust that the maximum amount of effort is being put forward to, to bring BG home? No, I don't. And, and I hate to say that because I do trust that they're, the, the persons working on this are very genuine people. That I do believe. Um, but I don't think the maximum amount of effort is being done because, again, the rhetoric and the actions 
don't match. You know, when you have a situation where BG can call our government, the embassy, 11 times, and that phone call don't get answered, you don't have my trust at that point until I see um, actions that are in BG's best interest. It would have been in her best interest for her phone call to have been answered. It would be in her best interest for her to be back on U.S. soil. So until I see things like that, no. I, I know that you've had some conversations with the Secretary of State and with other officials, but you want to talk to President Biden, right? The most beneficial thing that I've been told is that, you know, you meet with President Biden. You know, he has that power. Mm -hmm. He is a person, you know, that ultimately will make that decision for BG to come home. And so while everybody else wants to tell me they care, I would love for him to tell me he cares. What do you want to tell him? If you were to sit in front of him, what would you say speaking directly to him? Well, honestly, the first thing is I want to humanize my wife to him. There's talk of prisoner swaps being the thing that needs to happen. Is that what you think should be done? Do you think that the administration should say, we will swap who you want for, for Brittany and bring her home? To be very honest with you, um, I don't really listen to much of the, the talk about the how um, and measures of you know what is necessary to get her home. But if that's what's necessary, then yes, do it. What do you want the world to know that your wife is facing in this uh, so-called trial that she's about to face? Well, that's a really good question. Um, honestly, I want people to try and just put themselves in her shoes, um, you know, and just think about the fact that, you know, um, this is not um, our typical system. So BG is not walking into a situation where there is a balance of justice. Um, she's walking into a situation where their judicial system has a 99% conviction rate. Um, so in their system, there is no innocent. In their system, is, is guilty. Have you seen any of the pictures that have been released this week of her? I have. I what have. What did you think? It was very disheartening, you know, and honestly, I told you I like to, you know, be very frank with my wife, you know, and authentic when I do write her, you know. And I told her, I said, I saw a picture. And I honestly, for a second, I thought you was insane. I said, you know, and it kind of, you know, took me aback. And so I told her, I was like, you know, I just want to tell you one thing. I said, if you are losing your mind, just be gracious with yourself because you're human and that's okay. And that when you come back, you know, we will love you back whole. And I said, if you aren't going insane, you know, just do me a favor and, you know, just try and keep whatever integrity you can control by not allowing them to depict you in ways that are not really, you know, your current state, I said. So if you got to put a hoodie on and cover your head, do it. You know, don't don't allow them to try and strip you completely to that degree, because at the end of the day, they're controlling the media over there. So I try not to take it as just truth. Um, but. It did make me worry. Has she had a chance to respond? She did. Okay, what'd she say? <laughs> uh, what did she laugh? <laughs> she, she did. She said, babe, I promise I'm not a lunatic yet. <laughs> she said, I haven't completely gone crazy. Um, she said, but I was very shocked because when I turned that corner, it was over 100 um, news outlets wow. with cameras waiting right there. And she told me that 
She was also very exhausted because, again, this is not a normal process. So BG is having to travel over five hours round trip when she goes to court in a very, very, very tiny cage with her knees bent, feet up to the ground because it's not big enough for her to fit in. So she is experiencing a lot the days before she walks into court. And so she was just like, it was just a lot. I was in a terrible mood. Um, My body was hurting. And just, I was shocked when I turned that corner. Yeah. When she first disappeared back in February, when did you first know that something was wrong? It was the minute I woke up. You know, it was just too many messages. And the minute that I clicked on it, you know, she's like, babe, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I'm just like, what is going on? And she's like, they have me in this room. I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm like, who are they? Like, what room? Your your lawyer hat went (laughs) on. Yeah, my lawyer hat went on. I'm like, they? You never use they. Like, who are they? Like, and that was my first question to her. Who are they? And what room, you know, and once I got the answer to those questions that they were TSA agents, um, I think that's what you call them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I called her agent and I'm like, I need you to get somebody there now. Like wherever my wife is at, you need to get somebody there now. Do you think she's being used as a political pawn by Russia? Honestly, all of this stuff is so new to me. Um... I didn't even understand what a political pawn was for a minute. And, you know, but I mean, she's, a, that way. <laughs> she's an American. She's a black woman. She's a, a lesbian woman. Uh, all of those things. I mean, when you realize kind of the context around that, what did you what did you think? It was a big pill to swallow. I just didn't understand it. Like, it felt like a movie for me. You know, I didn't understand these terms and these words. And in my mind, BG's just my best friend, you know? So, like, I know she's a big deal, but did I ever think that she could be big enough to where somebody would want to use her to get something else? No, you know? So it was really hard for me to to grasp that, you know? But then I realized, like, the answer to that question is yes, you know? Like, yes. Can they get something in return for BG? Yes, they can. Are they willing to do that? Yes. And at this point, I want them to. Whatever you want, please ask. There are a lot of families who are going through what you are going through. Paul Whelan is still in Russia. Um, Trevor Reed just returned. What has your connection been like with those other families of wrongfully detained Americans? They were so loving. I just met, you know, some very genuine broken people and they were, you know, arms wide open for me um, for support in any type of way throughout the process. And the first thing they said was, you know, do not be quiet about this. Do not let them forget about your loved one. They will forget about your loved one. We are three years in. We are four years in. And my heart was breaking hearing it because I I pray to God, you know, three years does not pass by and BG is still wrongfully detained in Russia. And as we reported earlier this hour, Groiner's trial has only just begun. We'll see her again in a Russian courtroom next Thursday. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he has no higher priority than bringing Griner home, along with other wrongfully detained Americans, including Paul Whelan. You can see more of Abby Phillips' incredible interview on Inside Politics Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. And new information about the pressure campaign aimed at January 6th committee's star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. Plus, why the FDA wants the COVID vaccine manufacturers to make adjustments to the booster shots for the fall. 
Topping our politics lead, multiple sources tell CNN that Cassidy Hutchinson, the January 6th committee's now star witness, told the committee that she had been contacted by someone attempting to influence her testimony. And now, according to multiple people familiar with the committee's work, CNN has learned that messenger was an intermediary for former chief of staff Mark Meadows, her former boss. A spokesman for Meadows denies that. But let's discuss former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. I'm going to bring you in for this. Hi, everyone, by the way. How big of a deal is this? It should be a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, it may not be. But Pamela, I I end this week still with this image of this 26-year-old courageous woman who sat and stood in front of the world and contrast that with Mark Meadows. Uh, What a coward. Uh, He's not alone, but the fact that this all went on and he did nothing and she's prepared and has spoken is really impressive. Yeah, quite a dichotomy. I want to go to you, Sochi, on also another revelation that came out from this hearing that has been under scrutiny. CNN has actually learned that new details from the two Secret Service sources about Hutchinson's recounting of the episode in um, the, the SUV where Trump was berating and lunging at his protective detail. Now, the sources say that multiple agents told them what happened, um, including the driver of the SUV. But the sources said nobody mentioned being assaulted by the president. How important is it, though, that this is corroborated, uh, that this story is corroborated, right? I mean, the, the granular details may end up being different from the, the you know, uh, uh, dramatized version of the story that was going around. But the bottom line is the overall premise was corroborated and that the president wanted to go to the Capitol. Yeah, I think it is. Um, there are important facts here, and I think I agree that she was extremely courageous coming out. I think that you will see a bunch of people try to discredit her. You've seen that over the last few days. And the reality is, is that you will see information come out in the next few weeks that either backs up her story and that delivers more information. But what the committee has been very clear about is they want everyone to come forward. And so if people do have more information, then that that they should come forward and say that. There are pieces of the puzzle, I think, that that are contained, that are missing, and they and the committee wants to hear that. But I do think yeah. it is important. It was important to hear from her testimony. Um, it was pretty damning testimony, and I think that's yeah. why you see Republicans but, try to silence her. And why Mike did Benos. the committee? Okay, so the committee had to know that she was that, that Trump allies were going to try to discredit her, right? Was it a mistake for the committee not to have? corroborated that beforehand because it was hearsay, right? Yeah, and I don't even know. To me, it's almost a distraction. The big story is the president of the United States knew his supporters were armed. He knew they were going to the Capitol, and he told them to. That, to me, was the big news. And I think, but that, you know, that is what makes your question really important, is this committee, which has been incredibly professional, these hearings, I think, have been better than most people expected, have been riveting to a lot of of the country. Ratings have been pretty good. This was perhaps a mistake, because anything that this committee puts out that um, can be questioned, um, can be proven to be not accurate, um, it undermines this incredibly brave witness who has put an incredible amount of really important facts on the table. I completely agree with you. The details of what really happened in that, did he really grab, did he just get angry and throw his arms up or did he really lunge for someone to grab the the steering wheel? Doesn't really, that matters as much as like whether it was ketchup or mustard on the wall when he threw the hamburger uh, in the private dining room. What matters is the, is 
knowing this crowd was armed yes. and wanting them to go to the Capitol. Yes. To me, that was the most explosive thing. It's the grand irony of these hearings largely is that, you know, much of what we have seen in terms of damning behavior from the president happened out loud. We all saw it mm -hmm. on that day. We are getting details now that we know go further in terms of what he was doing in those private settings. But I don't think there's any question that the witness that we saw this week uh, pushed this further. And, ha and, and I think in the, in the journalistic sense, in the kind of first draft of history sense, really gave us a clear picture that the president both knew the risk and the violent risk that the mob uh, uh, posed on January 6th. And not only did he not care about those risks, he actually saw them as advantageous to him to, to, to achieve his political goals. And so I think that is certainly the larger, ta larger takeaway from this witness. But I do think uh, uh, it is, it's, to Ryan's point, this committee has to know that the Republicans are looking for any way to, to, to demean and to discredit uh, right. uh, these, these witnesses. And so it is no surprise that we have seen kind of Trump world mobilize on this specific detail, mm -hmm. because what they are trying to signal to the rest of the country is that this is a partisan uh, uh, kind of witch hunt, to use the right. terms of Donald Trump, and therefore it can all be discarded. And now, we know factually that is not fact good enough. When in fact, most of what she said was firsthand accounts. Exactly. This was, I believe, one of the only, if not the only, yeah. hearsay incident that she recounted. But of course, that is what they're they're going after. Um, and then, of course, there was a letter from uh, that that one of the lawyers said that mm -hmm. he had actually written. But I want to get to the, the the payments, right? Because there's a lot of scrutiny instead on. Who's paying these lawyers representing yeah. the witnesses? Your colleagues today are reporting that former President Trump's political organization and his allies are footing the bill for at least a dozen committee witnesses. What are the implications of that? Yeah, no, I'm going to leave that to the lead. I mean, there's a real kind of uh, ethics question here, of course. We know that the subject now of this investigation is going out of his way to kind of provide uh, a cover or, or legal defense fees for those witnesses. I think that that obviously provides a legal and ethical question, but it plays into what we have seen from Donald Trump politically and around his allies for the last five, six years. It has been a very clear message to him, even from when, uh, go back to when he was talking to his supporters and saying, oh, when you, if you face legal fees or beat someone up, I'll pay for them. This is someone who has made clear to anyone around him in a kind of, uh, in a kind of mafia-esque uh, uh, way that if you stay on the team, I will support you. And that is free from fact. That is free from the ethics that we know come with the office of the president. And that goes beyond, I think, the baselines of what, of what we know is the truth of this hearing, which is that there was an assault on democracy. And so that kind of staying on the team has become more important to, for this president and those around him than kind of following through on the tenets of democracy. Mm -hmm. But that has been true for Donald Trump right. since the day he came down that elevator. Right. I mean, so much of the witness tampering and the language, I'm like, when I was covering the Mueller investigation, it was the same kind of stuff to Michael Cohen yes. and others. It, it, it hasn't changed. The playbook essentially hasn't changed. Ryan, you sat down and spoke with Alyssa Farah Griffin, as well as Republican strategist Tim Miller. And Griffin says that she was instrumental in helping Hutchinson break away from the grip yeah. of Trump role. Tell us more about it. Well, she, look, she was best friends with Cassidy, Alyssa, and, and we've all seen Alyssa on, on CNN talking about this as well. They were best friends in the White House, very, very close. Uh, Alyssa's a little bit older than her, but they were sort of in that same kind of generation of Trump staffers in the White House. Um, Alyssa resigned from the White House in December of 2020. Uh, in disgust because she saw what Trump was doing post-election um, and stayed in touch with, uh, with, with Cassidy. Um, I think not so much as Cassidy uh, became a witness in these hearings and had a Trump-affiliated lawyer. Her lawyer was the ethics lawyer mm -hmm. in the Trump White House. Um, 
She did, I believe, three sessions with that lawyer behind closed doors with the committee. We've seen a lot of the videos in, in, in her hearing. And then she broke with that lawyer. She fired him, essentially, and she got someone different. And Alyssa was very, I think, instrumental in that period in sort of going back to Liz Cheney, according to Alyssa, and saying, hey, Cassidy has more she wants to tell you all. Hmm. Um, and I think that led to the fourth interview uh, and, of course, the dramatic all-day hearing. And the dramatic hearing. surprise hearing. Yeah, right? I think this is sort of just um, filling in between the lines here. I think most of what we saw in that hearing of Cassidy's personal testimony that day, which was the, some of the new, more dramatic pieces of information, that was the new stuff. The stuff that they played in the videotape clips from her original three depositions with hmm. the older lawyer, um, I think if you, if you look at the, the, those two sets of um, uh, how they unfurl the information, the newer, sort of more dramatic stuff was the stuff from uh, where she said, I have more I need to tell, and I'm going to do it with this new lawyer. Yeah, and that's so if interesting. You, if you remember, I, I was wondering when I was watching, okay, what's the new information? Yeah, mostly they used forward. clips from her deposition, but then... She obviously personally testified to some to some some other things, and I think, um, you know, she had some. You know, when you go into a deposition, if you have a lawyer that they, they'll basically advise you, you don't add anything, mm-hmm. right? Answer the questions, don't add anything. Mm-hmm. If you want to offer us another level of cooperation, and you start thinking about it, and you think, you know what, my lawyer was like telling me not to give you this because you never yeah. asked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. It's not that she was like lying to the committee or Absolutely. saying it's it's the way that these goes when, when you're with a lawyer and things changed and she brought more information as we heard. Thank you all so much. Thanks, I really ben. appreciate it. And you can hear the rockets in the distance as Russia closes in a, a key Ukrainian region. We are in the trenches on the front lines coming up. In our health lead, the CDC says about a third of the U.S. population lives in a county with high COVID-19 community levels. That's a jump from last week when less than a quarter of the Americans' lives lives in such an area, a share that had stayed consistent for about a month. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us live to explain. So, Elizabeth, what is the significance of this and what is the CDC recommending? So, Pamela, you don't need to be an epidemiologist to know that there is a lot of COVID out there. Certainly, I think everyone uh, knows someone who's had it recently or maybe had it yourself. So let's take a look at a map of the United States. When you look at these communities that are in red, they're experiencing high transmission. That's about a third of the country when you look at it as a population basis. Theoretically, well, not even theoretically, the CDC says people in those communities should be wearing masks. But I will tell you that uh, you just have to ask people in those communities. I don't think they are adhering to that advice in any significant way, but technically that is what the CDC tells them to do. The FDA is advising vaccine manufacturers to change the composition of the COVID booster shot for the fall. Explain what this means. Right. So the so pharmaceutical companies have been Moderna and Pfizer have been working on boosters for the fall because we're expecting yet more covid. And they told the FDA, I'm sorry, the FDA told the companies add in Omicron. Now they're saying add in something specifically for BA four and five. When you see these numbers, Pamela, you will understand why they told them to do that. In the week of June 18th, 37 percent of all strains out there in the U.S. were BA four and five, which is a sub variant of Omicron. It's still Omicron. Now it's 52 percent. Uh, that's in one week. So that's a huge jump. And so they said, look, this, these two strains obviously are winners. Uh, they know how to go out there and beat the other strains. Put it in the shot. 
I want to ask you about hospitalizations. The numbers are rising. They're around 30,000, but have nearly doubled over the past two months. Is this something public health experts are concerned about? Um, yes, certainly seeing rising cases definitely makes people concerned. I mean, take a rising hospitalizations, rather. Take a look at this. On May 2nd until now, the number of hospitalizations has risen dramatically. And yes, that is of concern, especially since people have just gotten very lax about wearing masks and other kinds of mitigation efforts. And Pamela, mm-hmm. I know it's, we sort of feel like we're past COVID. 300 Americans are dying every day of yeah. COVID. 300 American lives lost every day. I know it's not in the thousands like it was at some point, but still, that's a lot of people. That is a lot. And it's important to be reminded of that, the reality of COVID to this day. Really quickly, vaccination rates among children have lagged behind adults. But since children under five became eligible last month, we're actually seeing some positive data on that front. Tell us about that. We are. So if you look at the population overall, vaccinations are indeed way up. When you take a look at these numbers, you say, wow, last week it was 40,000. This week it's 76,000. That's uh, now 67 percent of the population is fully vaccinated. But that jump largely is because children under the age of five were allowed to get vaccinated. So when you look at vaccinations by age, you can still see that it is largely older Uh, groups that have those really good numbers, the 91 percent, the, you know, the 82 percent. There still needs to be more of an effort to vaccinate younger Americans. Pamela? Absolutely. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. Thanks. Military families forced to drink water poisoned by a fuel leak. What the Navy knew and when they knew it. In our world lead, three assassination attempts on pro-Russian officials in occupied areas of southern Ukraine seem to show a growing Ukrainian resistance. And U.S. officials think Putin doesn't have enough forces in that area to assert full control. But in the east, fighting back is less of an option. CNN's Phil Black reports near Slavonyansk, a city with fresh scars from the war in 2014, now surrounded by Russian positions and filled with terrified, exhausted Ukrainians. These Ukrainian fighters know it won't be long now. The Russians are getting closer, firing heavy munitions into this dense forest every day. Vladimir shows us where cluster bombs and much bigger rounds have fallen close to their camp. Incoming fire booms steadily nearby. As Mihailo proudly shows us the advanced anti-tank weapons supplied by Western allies. They were hugely effective earlier in the war, but they're not the weapons Ukraine needs most for this fight in the East. You can hear it, Mihailo says. For every one of our heavy shots, they make 10 or 20. It's because we lack artillery. Outgunned by the Russians, outnumbered too. Of course they're coming, Maxim says, and there are many more of them than us. The fighters positioned in this forest, a short distance from Russian lines, are all volunteers who signed up when the war started. For weeks they've been waiting, ready to carry out one job. To attack any Russian convoys trying their luck on a nearby road. If, when, the Russians decide to move through and take this territory, it is unlikely these soldiers will ever see them, not up close. They will just feel more of the same uh, heavy weapons, artillery, the rocket fire, the big heavy weapons that Russia is using to drive Ukrainian forces back steadily, slowly across this region. Russia's big weapons don't just fall in the forest. 
Slavyansk, a key city in the Donbass, is now within easy range. Here, Russia's artillery destroyed a local business. Six people outside a supermarket and bus stop were injured when cluster bombs dropped around them. Bomblets also scattered over this apartment complex, killing a man and a pet, terrifying many more people. Valentina says the explosions blew debris over her bed. Every night she tries to block out the noise of war with a pillow. In Bakhmut, southeast of Slavyansk, the explosions are even greater in number and power, tearing apart people's homes as they huddle beneath them in basements. The Russian advance on Bakhmut is only a short drive from this road. Almost every home still has someone living in it. Almost every home has felt Russian firepower. But the people here are still reluctant to leave. Marina feels she has nowhere to go, but the strain of staying is unbearable. She says, we don't have gas, we don't have power, we don't have water, but we only want the shooting to stop. Pamela, with its loose aim and, and, and its no, and lack of concern for civilian suffering, Russia's artillery, its unmatched artillery, is looking like an unstoppable force here in the Donbass as it endlessly pounds Ukraine's defensive positions and communities as well. It adds to a grinding sense of inevitability here. The fight is so unequal that Russia can be slowed down, but its goal of conquering this whole region for the moment well, it looks like that can't be stopped. Pamela. All right, Phil Black in Ukraine. Thank you, Phil. And now to our buried lead, a spotlight on a story that doesn't always get the attention it deserves. The Pentagon now admitting to a series of failures that led to families living on a naval base to drink and bathe in water contaminated with fuel. Now, this started more than a year ago at the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility in Hawaii. A fuel leak there got into a nearby well with hundreds of people suffering significant health effects. CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon now or at a Navy investigation found one mistake after another here. That's right, Pamela. The leak we heard about, the leak that made news and sickened these families happened in late November of last year. But the process the Navy found after command investigation, the series and cascade of failures that led to that point started much earlier. Take a look at this timeline. The first leak was in early May. That's when workers operating there tried to transfer fuel, but did so in a way that surged the pressure in the line and caused the pipe to burst at two joints, causing a leak of fuel. They thought it was only 1,500 gallons. The investigation found it was 20,000 gallons. The vast majority of that fuel, and this is between May and November of last year, was held in fuel retention pipes as part of a fire suppression system. But that system, those pipes were made of plastic PVC pipes, and it sagged on November 20th of last year as a worker had an underground passenger cart moving through. It hit a valve on one of those pipes, causing that fuel to gush out. For a couple of days, the Navy didn't think the water had reached, or rather the fuel had reached the groundwater. But by uh, just over a week later, on November 28th of last year, the Navy shut down the facility, announcing a short time later that it wouldn't but just be a temporary shutdown, but they would permanently close the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. That's after hundreds were sickened in the area there. The problems were so bad. The lack of training and exercises to prepare for this were so egregious. Here's what the Navy wrote. 
The deficiencies endured due to seams in accountability and a failure to learn from prior incidents that falls unacceptably short of Navy standards for leadership, ownership, and the safeguarding of our communities. Pamela, there is still an investigation into what administrative and disciplinary actions will be taken. Given the language there, that harsh language, it seems as if there will be commanders and others held accountable for this series of failures. All right, CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you. Well, a woman minding her own business is brutally attacked after brushing off a man's advances. What police are doing now to stop similar attacks and why a lot of women say it won't work. And we're back with our world lead. The vicious attack last month on a woman who refused a man's advances. The beating caught on video, setting off a firestorm of reaction, with many saying this is the reality for women throughout China. CNN's Selena Wang reports from Beijing on the stepped-up police response. We do want to warn you, the story contains images that some may find disturbing. This brutal attack on women at a restaurant in northern China last month triggered nationwide rage and despair. And this is how the government is reacting to the incident in Tangshan City, amassing an army of police to crack down on crime, sending brigades of armed police to patrol the streets at night, going into bars, restaurants, outdoor food markets, interrupting groups eating outside with loudspeakers, telling men, no fighting, no beating, especially of women. SWAT teams hovering over women without male companions. Women on Chinese social media mocked the excessive show of force. One wrote, this is just for show. It doesn't solve any real problems. Another said, we don't need men's protection. What we need is a safer and fairer society. The graphic surveillance video from last month shows a man making an unwanted advance towards a woman. After she pushes him away, the assault escalates into shocking brutality, with multiple men kicking and beating the women with bottles and chairs. This is believed to be an image of one of the two women who was hospitalized after the attack. Authorities claim the two women are still in the hospital, recovering from, quote, minor injuries, denying rumors that some of the women died. Police arrested all nine people involved in the attack. Several of them had criminal histories. Victims of criminal activity in Tangsen seized the moment to flood the local police station. This man says he's 86 years old and has been waiting in line for hours. This man says it's been seven years since he reported his case, but still no progress. They hope the national attention will pressure police to solve their long-ignored cases. Online, people rush to do the same, holding up their ID cards to prove the authenticity of their claims and call out their perpetrators' names. This man says, friends on the internet, please uphold justice for me. Another woman shared footage of her boyfriend violently attacking her when she was seven months pregnant, pinning her down in an attempt, she says, to kill her baby. Another says gang members broke into his bakery a year ago. He shows surveillance footage of them destroying his shop. He says the criminals have been harassing him and his family ever since. This woman, a bar singer, says in May, gang members beat her and her colleagues and locked them in a cage for 16 hours. Police say they are investigating all three of those cases. State media says gangsters and drunken men are to blame for the restaurant attack. 
while reports linking the case to sexism or systemic violence against women have been swiftly censored. By framing this incident as a single incident that's that's merely gang violence, the government avoided the problems within their system. This is the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other incidents that are happening every day. Chinese women are actually demanding a systemic change. In recent years, authorities have tried to stamp out feminist voices, seeing them as threats to social stability. As police parade across the country to show they're taking crime seriously, the government squashes outrage over sexual harassment and gender-based violence. And Pamela, Chinese authorities are blatantly using COVID controls to block journalists from covering the story, even though Tongson hasn't reported any COVID cases in weeks. Even state media journalists are being harassed after traveling there. But what's disturbing to so many women here is that the role of gender and sexism in this attack is being erased. Pamela. So disturbing. Our thanks to Selena Wang for that report. What Simone Biles, Steve Jobs, John McCain, and Megan Rapino all have in common. That's next. It is the highest civilian honor, and today the White House announced 17 people will be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The recipients include Simone Biles, the most decorated American gymnast in history. Biles has also been an advocate for victims of sexual abuse, recently testifying before Congress about the FBI's mishandling of the investigation into Larry Nassar's sexual abuse of hundreds of female athletes. Another Olympic gold medalist, Megan Rapinoe, is also being recognized. The two-time World Cup champion has been a big part of the long fight for gender pay equality. And Diane Nash is a civil rights icon. She is a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and worked closely with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to organize important civil rights campaigns like the lunch counter sit-ins. Also, Apple's co-founder and CEO Steve Jobs is being recognized. During his time at Apple, he changed the way the world worked, communicated, listened to music, and watched movies. Well, President Biden will hold a ceremony for the new recipients next week. And before we go, we want to welcome the newest member of the lead family. Ella Rose Tejera was born at 1059 this morning, weighing a healthy six pounds and six ounces. She is so precious, and I can't believe Veronica looks as amazing as she does just after giving birth. Mom and baby are doing great. We're told the lead is sending lots of love. And congratulations to our producer, Veronica, her husband, Dax, and of course, big sister, Sophia, as they become a family of four. And be sure to tune in in this Sunday morning to State of the Union. Dana Bash talks to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, plus Republican Congressman and January 6th Committee member Adam Kinzinger. It's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. I'm Pamela Brown and for Jake Tapper. Have a great Fourth of July weekend. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.